All right. Hey, we want to invite you guys to have a seat. You guys are much more awake than the nine o'clock per usual. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Brandon. I serve as lead pastor here at Soma Midtown. We are going to enter into a time of teaching from God's word here in just a few minutes. And if you're new or guest with us, I just want to explain kind of how this works and it's different in different traditions. Um, we as elders, so I'm one of three elders here at Soma we are responsible for what we call the big T teaching of the church. And so it's our job to kind of define the doctrine and make sure that what was being taught here on a regular basis is orthodox and sound. Um, and so uh, we will often teach, one of our elders will teach here on Sunday mornings, but um, we also believe that there's uh, a category called little T teaching, which you read the book, the rest of the New Testament, Colossians and other places talks about um, the church teaching one another, this invitation to teach one another, to use our gifts uh, and for mature people to be teaching each other. And so we will, uh, I'm, I'm out of shape, sorry. Walking up those two steps. It's been a long week, fall break. Deep breath. We uh, also get the privilege of hearing from uh, all kinds of different men and women who are gifted both inside of our church and outside of our church to teach God's word essentially to explain it, to apply it to our lives, and to bring a diverse kind of uh, perspectives from the body. And so uh, today, you are privileged. So we, we oversee that whole process, who preaches, we prepare with them, we pray with them, we make sure that it's, again, aligned with our teaching. But today, you are be, you'll be super blessed. We have back with us again, Jared McLean, uh, Jared and Catherine, uh, Catherine's in here, and their beautiful children have become dear friends of ours. They have been in Indy just for a few months. Jared serves as the area director for Young Life and is one of the only Young Life directors I know who's also an ordained pastor. Um, and so it's just such a gifted uh, preacher. We've gotten to spend a lot of time, our families together. Uh, this week we were at a conference, a pastor's conference down in Louisville together and just had such a great time. And so I'm super, super thankful for you, Jared. Thanks for coming and preparing uh, God's word for us this morning. Uh, before he comes, I want to um, invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, is where our text is going to be this morning. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, there should be one of these red ones around you. Grab one of these. Uh, it'll be on page 605. And so I'm going to read this chapter 6, and then Jared will come and, uh, and preach for us. These are the words of the prophet Isaiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. The hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies, 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. And he replied, go, say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Then I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Good morning again. Mm, that was much better than the first service. Um, Pastor Brandon, Emily, thank you so much for your hospitality as always. Um, we have been friends of Soma since we've arrived here in Indianapolis. And you all have been warm and very hospitable to Catherine and I and our family. So thank you so much. As Pastor said, we will be in Isaiah chapter 6. I will pray for our time, and we will see what the Lord has to say to us. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and mercy. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and Lord, we thank you for your spirit. So with that spirit, Lord, I ask that you would give me the words to say, that you would help me to preach the truth and nothing but the truth. I ask that your word would fall on fresh soil, or fresh on hearts. And whatever is not of you, would it fall off. In Jesus' name, amen. The human appetite longs and hungers for grandiosity, for glory, the desire for bigness and beauty, it's inherent in you and I, and whether consciously or subconsciously, you spend most of your moments in life searching and hoping for something bigger and better, especially in moments of discomfort, disappointment, even death. To her family, she was known as young Lilibet. To the modern world, she was known as Elizabeth, Alexandra Mary. You know her as the late Queen Elizabeth II. Her reign spanned 70 years and 214 days. This would make her the longest British monarch in history. And I wasn't there that day, and I'm sure none of you were either. She was just 25 when she was pronounced queen. Millions had gathered remotely and physically to witness the coronation of the next person to sit on England's famed throne. England had just lost their beloved King Edward. 
and to them glory had died. There she was that June 2nd day in 1953, ushered to that throne resting in the midst of Westminster's Abbey Hall, draped in heavy, fine, and ornate clothing. Elizabeth walked ever so slowly to her destiny, her purpose, her calling. Every eye in the room and abroad fixated on her every step, clothed in a white dress, jewels and pendants of earth's finest treasures fixed upon her person, gold dripping from her chest, gold dripping from her ears and arms. As she passed, each staring pupil spectators would then witness the robe of state left in her wake. It would leave a trail of awe for her audience, a six-yard long, hand-woven, silk velvet cloak lined with Canadian ermine. I have no idea what that is. It would require the assistance of seven maids of honor to ensure she and her robe would get to the throne. Hymns were sung. Prayers were praised. Communion was given. After all, this was a worship service, and according to London, this was God's person and God's seat. Glory had risen again. Now, I'm sure many of you are sitting here and wondering, What's the big deal about a queen or queen that really doesn't have much power these days? Maybe you're thinking, why are so many across the world so invested in this antiquated and out-of-touch tradition? And I think Elizabeth's late mother, Queen Mary, is a kind of door into the human heart when she captured the sentiment of this idea. She says that the throne of England gives the people an ideal to strive for. It is their great hope while living ordinary and plain lives. In other words, the monarch exists so that people can see and feel glory in their miserable lives. But I got to wonder, I got to wonder, Brandon, what happens when that great hope dies like she did a few weeks ago? What do you do when over and over someone else takes up residence in that old seat? What happens when that glory and dominion of a kingdom becomes smaller and smaller, more irrelevant as the years and decades and centuries go by? Friends, that's the question that lifts off the pages of our text this morning and presses you and I. What is it about earthly thrones that have you so enamored, so invested, so enchanted with their narratives? Sure, it may not be the throne of England for you, but I know for some of you, it matters who takes up residence at 1600 Pennsylvania. Or maybe it's the throne that you call the New York Stock Exchange, that you check Every day, waiting and hoping if I could just clear one more deal, close one more dollar, 
then maybe, just maybe, comfort and happiness is ahead of me. Maybe for others, sexual intimacy that promises the old adage that being fully loved and, and fully known, no matter the cost. You know what your thrones are. I know the basis of my argument is standing on sufficient ground because this is the very social and historical and theological predicament of the text. Before there were modern queens and kings and potentates, there was God's own theocracy. I thought I would get a little response after that. And so as I told the first service, when you have a chocolate person sitting and standing in front of you, preaching God's word to you, it's okay to say something back to me. It's okay to give a head nod and a good mmm or a preach pastor, any of the two. The more you say to me, the faster I get to my seat. So I'll leave you with that. Here it is, verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died. If you know anything about Israel's history, then you may recall how we have come to this point in their story. Oh, those Israelites. Those Israelites and their human wisdom. They had drunk the cultural Kool-Aid. Instead of being sufficient enough, instead of God being sufficient enough to be their king, they wanted to be like their pagan neighbors around them. They wanted a throne that they could see and touch like everyone else. You know the story. First, it was Moses. Moses wasn't good enough. Then along came Joshua. But that, that, that Joshua wasn't quite what they were looking for either. So then they said to God, hey, Lord, send us a judge. Send us someone who will rule and, and lead us rightly. Come here, Samson and Gideon and Ehud and the like. Come lead us to prosperity and security. Judge after judge after judge. Failure and unfaithfulness were their results. Okay, okay, Lord, we, I, I think we've got it this time. A king. Yes, yes, yes. We want a king. We want someone to sit in our own throne, just like those pagan folks. We want something physical to worship. It'll make us like all those other folks around us. You know what's synonymous with the thrones of Isaiah's day and our 21st century thrones? They always become There is constant transition, scandal after scandal, constant inadequacy. And how do I know this? In the year that King Uzziah died. You and I would do well to feel the heaviness of this clause. It ought to remind you that all things and all people are death eligible. Monarchs. Governments, billionaires, CEOs, your favorite social media influencer, and all and everything in between will someday have a date with death. There is nothing under the sun that remains forever. And friends, I've got to tell you, 
That includes you. That includes me. That's what we come to learn here from Isaiah chapter 6. This text is tailored to show you and I that your longings for transcendence, your hunger for glory and beauty are not the problem. See, the problem is that you are looking in all the wrong places for your answers. You have hopes that are meant for a divine audience, not earthly ones. In other words, you are right to desire glory. You are right to, to, to want wonder and beauty. You are correct in wanting more for your life and for those around you. But the fact that your soul has yet to be quenched indicates, it points to, that something must be amiss. That's precisely where we find ourselves situated here at the onset of Isaiah's prophetic ministry. It comes at a time in Israel's history in which they, along with their kings, were looking for divine solutions in all the wrong places. There was a kind of hole in their wholeness, prosperity and peace and social stability had atrophied their spiritual lives. Life with God had become insufficient for some. Life with God had become non-existent for others. And kings like Uzziah and all his predecessors had done what was right in their own eyes. Now judgment was about to roll downhill on Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And right on the heels of death, God intervenes. God sends Isaiah a vision of Israel's fate. But, but, but notice, notice now what Isaiah sees first. The Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. The hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings, two that covered their faces, two that covered their feet, and two that caused them to fly. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the earth. Friends, this is power. This is glory. This is beauty. This is who we call the Holy One of Israel. It's what scholars call the transcendent God. And see, it was just another day in the neighborhood for old Isaiah. His routine this day was no different than any other day. He left his condo downtown just like every other day. He kissed his bride goodbye like any other morning. He made his rounds, giving counsel and wisdom to religious and civil magistrates and leaders. Can't you see him? Notebook in one hand, Middle Eastern coffee in the other, giving direction, taking notes, being amongst the people who have become bored with their God. The same God that had come through for them time and time and time again. The wealthy among them have built their own cathedrals. City leaders have built their own thrones. All while the poor wander to and fro 
along those dusty Judean roads. Oh, but all of a sudden, Isaiah is stopped, dead in his tracks. He's swept up in a moment's notice, and all he can see is bright, shining light. The silhouette of a being that is unlike anything or anyone he's ever encountered. Angelic creatures that numbers could not number were flying to and fro around God, from God. All singing the same perfect tune. Holy, holy, holy. There's Isaiah. You see him. Eyes become wide. His mouth is to the floor, stuck in place. Not knowing what to do with what's in front of him. Old Testament scholar Gerhardus Voss says this about Isaiah's experience. It is safe to say no other pagan in Isaiah's day has ever looked upon their version of God in the same manner that Isaiah looked upon his when having this vision in the temple. That is to say, no one can show up like God can show up. No other God or entity can demand such an audience. And when he does show up, holiness is on full display. See, we humans consider the category of holiness, we tend to think solely in the vein of purity and, and moral perfection. While that is true, I want to understand, I, I am orthodox, that is true. The sense here is one of complete and utter distinction. Language cannot name it. Concepts break down trying to describe him. God is making it known to Isaiah that he is unlike all of creation. So good luck trying to find a comparison. You see, God is so much of God that the Bible says that the hem, the hem of his robe could not be contained. Now, we're all wearing pants. We, we all know what hems are. They're an inch, maybe a few inches. They're about this much. You can manipulate it. You could take it to a tailor. They could do anything they want to that hymn. But this hymn, God's hymn, was so much that buildings could not have room for it. God is so much of God that his own clothing does not have enough real estate on earth. And you ask me, what is his playpen? The universe. All he has created is all that he resides in. That is holy. And you thought the robe of the queen was something. Before God says a word, picks up a finger. He wants Isaiah to know whom he is dealing with. And so much of what is about to happen to Israel is predicated on the character of God rather than the action of God. I thought that might catch a few of you, but that's all right. You see, God's holiness is not simply an attribute or one of his main traits. No, no, see, God's holiness is his very person. It's the essence of his being, meaning whenever he shows up, you get all of this on display every time and everywhere. You don't get some of him, you don't get most of him. You get all of him. 
And I labor here because this is a side of God that has lost much traction in our day. I'm preaching to modern, sophisticated, entrepreneurial folk. We, we, we sometimes look past and look down on things of the past. And I remember those times. I miss those times where we would put respect on God's name. We would have a, a reverence and worthiness, and we would lift up his name high and holy. I remember folk who would talk about God in a manner that was worthy. In the church I grew up, we would sing songs like, there's nobody, there's nobody like you, Lord. Ain't nobody like Jesus. It would remind us of how infinite the chasm was between the creature, you, and the creator, him. And this begs the question, When was the last time God's transcendence and holiness was your sole reason and motivation to trust him? What is holding you back from trusting someone so perfect, so infinite? I think when you encounter something so different, so other than, so powerful and holy like God, you quickly begin to realize everything he is while simultaneously seeing everything you're not. That's good news, friends. Why? Because seeing God for who he is tells you that something about you is awfully wrong. Notice the first words out of Isaiah's mouth. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And living among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah didn't praise. He didn't shout. He didn't even sing. He didn't even keep silent. All he can utter is woe is me. He opens his mouth and confesses. He acknowledges that he doesn't belong in God's presence. He instantly becomes self-aware and bows his head in humility. Notice the vulnerability on display. The idea of being ruined here in the original Hebrew is to read more like to be destroyed. Isaiah understands that he should not be existing in the presence of God. He doesn't deserve to be in his face. He's not good enough. He's not holy to look upon such beauty. That's how holy God is. He can't even exist near non-holy things. Humility, which leads to honesty, is the only proper response towards God's holiness. But we are human, and sometimes what is proper is not always most natural. There are two barriers. I think there are two barriers in front of you and I when it comes to being humble. On the one hand, there's this thing called fear. Fear has a way of telling you that honesty leads to pain, that the moment you open up is the moment you will regret that decision. Fear says to you and I that humility leads to shame. To be vulnerable is to render oneself unsafe. 
And I know that there are folks this morning walking in with fear, wearing it like a heavy sweater, not knowing if they can trust the God that's been sung about and prayed about and being preached about because things in your life have been bleak. Folks have hurt you when you've given them your vulnerability and your trust. They've done something entirely different. On the other hand, oh, there's that thing called pride. After all, to be human is to struggle with pride, as Aquinas calls, pride a lack of submission to God. Therefore, the beginning of all sin. And pride has a way of putting up blinders so that you can't see you for who you truly are. This was the case for our friend Oedipus Rex that famous ancient Greek drama character. His tragic flaw in life was that of pride, hell-bent on finding out who killed his predecessor as king. And through a series of unfortunate events, Oedipus comes to find out that he was actually the culprit in the end. And that would be the force that compelled him to blind himself by putting nails in his eyes after he found out that he was the one that murdered the former king who was his father, and would then go on to to marry his mother. And Oedipus' pride couldn't allow him to see the folly of his own hands. As a proverb writer says, pride does come in before the fall. Both of these narratives have a way of seeping into our minds, into our hearts, and attaching themselves to the way in which you view God in your life. But when you place those narratives in front of God's holiness, they come back forward. Here it is, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar. With tongs, he touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Friends, his holiness doesn't just point to his transcendent power. It also indicates that his holiness is compassionate. You can bring your fear. You can bring your pride. You can bring your sin and shame and guilt. Because his holiness is big enough to cover that too. In his presence... He overwhelms you, but at the same time, in his presence, he's inviting you to be loved and to be known. And it's only in his presence where you can be fully undone and put back together at the same time. And when Isaiah says, woe is me, God doesn't flinch. He doesn't even move away. He doesn't even ask a question. He immediately covers Isaiah's sin. And I can't chase it how I want to, but when you become self-aware and honest with your life and your sin, God does what he does best. He saves. He forgives. He rescues. That's in his nature. He doesn't know how to do anything else. That's right. He is so much of God, he's not afraid of what you'll bring him. He doesn't care what you tell him. He's not bothered 
by your mess. He isn't offended by your mistakes. The holiness of God doesn't just cover all the earth. It covers you. That's my time. But before I get back to my seat, I've got to answer the question that I know you are all thinking right now in your minds. How is it that one's sins can be removed? Surely you can't simply put coals to your mouth over and over and over. No, see, I think God, I know God has someone better in mind. Skip down to verse 13. Like the terrapin or the oak that leaves the stump when felled, the holy seed is the stump. I wish I could preach it how I feel it. The coal on Isaiah's lips was a foretaste of something else, a precursor to someone greater that would defeat sin and death once and for all. I like it the way they would say in my church growing up, he would wrestle with death until death died. He would, he would die until sin apologized. He would die until the earth rocked and shaked like a drunken man. That, my friends, is a man named Jesus. And from a stump, he rose, and on a tree, he died. His name, Jesus. And he died for you, and he died for me. Nails were put in his hands. Nails were put in his feet. They stabbed him with the spear. A crown of thorns was on his head. They wrote above him, King of the Jews. Friends, that's power. That's majesty. That's humility for all the world to see. And down in the earth he went. And up from the grave he reigns victoriously. And you ask, what's the king that reigns over all? His name is King Jesus. Glory, 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 glory be to God. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy. You are God Almighty. Amen.